0: And here we are, our first episode of ah, season four OMG.
1: of Relay Essay.
0: Um, so it's a Canadian podcast about student affairs in Canada, obviously, and uh, the, whole pro- the whole model is that whoever we interview uh, tells us who they want to interview next. So mm-hmm. it's kind of passing the baton along from person to person. And uh, now we've got another player in the mix, another interviewer.
1: Hello, this is Nadia Rosemond. <laughs>
0: Amazing. And I'm Adam Kewen and uh, we're thrilled to tell you about the very first episode um, of this season that Nadia did, Mm -hmm. and you picked who it was.
1: Chantel Joy.
0: C-Joy. C-Joy. She's a celebrity. (laughs) So what made you want to speak to Chantel?
1: I just, I think for me, Chantel's been a really predominant um, professional within our, you know, student affairs, and someone that I knew from when I was an RA in Guelph. Uh, and our paths may, might have crossed when uh, I worked at Humber and she moved to Humber. So. And I know she's had like, the university experience through um, Guelph and working at York and then the college experience by working at Humber. So I was really curious about how that maybe has transformed and evolved her, her professional, her practicing style and, and such. And mm. Yeah, I look up to her and I really was excited to interview her to get to know more about what makes her tick. And how did it go? <laughs> oh my god we were both nervous it was obviously our first interview and i had a lot of questions but chantelle was wonderful and like handled all of my questions that some of them were a little bit you know a little bit hard now like, now looking back
2: <laughs>
0: like for full third degree yeah, yeah oh
1: my goodness uh but she handled it with grace and it was awesome and um i hope people enjoy listening to it
0: oh i'm sure they will let's get right to it the Want hear what they have to say along with all the guests up the way. the it's me, they, yes, they.
1: Okay, so uh, do you want to tell
2: people who you are? Okay, so <laughs> let's try this again. My name is Chantal Joy and I work at Humber College and I'm the Director of Advising and Student
1: Academic Support there. Amazing. So, Chantel, tell us a bit about uh, some of the roles that you held prior to your uh, position at Humber.
2: Okay. Well, mine has been a bit of a meandering journey. So, before I was at Humber, I was at York, and there, I actually, my primary role was with Residence Life, but I was embedded in the Student Affairs Department. So, I had a wonderful opportunity to do all sorts of things, including... Uh, academic advisor training, sitting on a retention council, uh, working with uh, academic support peers. Um, So that was a really rich experience for me, uh, in addition to all the res life experience I got there. And then before that, I was at the University of Guelph. And at Guelph, my role changed uh, a few times. So I started out there in the residence um, as a live-in professional and then moved to a department called the Office First-Year Studies, so all things first-year transition. And then we had a reorg, and I became part of a department called Student Life and Career Services. And my focus was um, the new student center and leadership programs there.
1: So uh, our research team, which is really me, <laughs> I was looking at your journey and like how you... Um, kind of like really made really good moves throughout, you know, different institutions. And I guess for my own, like, and hopefully other people's curiosity, but how do you, like, what inspires you to make the next step? So oftentimes people in our field, um, like, might dwell in a place a lot longer and maybe feel like there's things for them to do within that institution and, like, you know, kind of solidify their roots. So looking back on some of the steps you've taken and the institutions you visited, like, what inspired you to, jump to another another place and start over and and be new and and move wow
2: well i um for me it's it's really about the journey and the experience itself that i'm gonna get so i i was much less focused on titles or and you know i know as a young professional people said to me like you should know what you're gonna do in 15 years I, i didn't know what i was gonna do in 15 years Um, I knew that I was interested in the work I was doing. I knew there were other parts of student affairs I was interested in. uh, But really, that's why I said it's a meandering journey. Because for me, it was really about the right opportunity at the right time. And it was the interest of doing new work. And it's Mm -hmm. the same as you know. I've been at Humber now, uh, shoot, six years. Um, And when I entered Humber, I was director of student life. So I was doing something very different than I'm doing now. Um, And so opportunity presented itself. And and for me, it was about doing interesting new work. Um, I remember as a young professional getting challenged a lot because I was crossing boundaries in student affairs. I was going from res life to student life and back to res life. And people were like, well, why would you want to do that? Like, why would you go go from res life to student life? Like, it was a different world. And my answer was... This is all about working with students and it's all about student development. It's just new ways of engaging students and different tools for engaging students. And so for me, I never saw those boundaries the same way others do, but I certainly bumped into them early on because people had preconceived notions of what I should be able to do or want to do based on the you know, area of student affairs that I was in. So I've been really fortunate because I am a generalist as a student affairs professional. And I have been able to do that, to move through the field and look for new things that interest me. And I remember when I left residence life at Guelph and, and moved to another role at Guelph, which was the Office First Year Studies, I, I took a gamble. I took mm-hmm. a risk. I went from a, you know, what was a three-year continuing full-time contract um, which was ending, so it was time to move on, but I had an offer on the table from another school for a full-time professional position, and I turned it down Mm. because I had this interest, and I knew there was a contract position coming open in the Office of First Year Studies, and I had no idea if I was going to get it. I had no idea if the terms of that position were even going to meet my needs, but it was all about the experience that I wanted to get, and the full-time position that I turned down, it's not that it wouldn't have been an interesting experience, but when I looked at the substance of the job, it wasn't giving me a chance to engage with students in the way that I wanted to. It was far more administrative. So for me, it's always been about what's the substance of the job, what is the activity I'm going to get to engage in, think about ideas I will get to play with, what students am i going to get to meet and interact with. And my latest role introduced me to the world of career advising, and that has just been fantastic. I... Uh, I have grown such an appreciation for that field and the expertise that lies there, and the importance of uh, the work that gets done there for our students and for our grads.
1: Well, what were some of the differences you noticed from uh, your roles within residence and then your roles within student life? Because I know um, there's a t- like a, there's a group of us that were all res lifers for a while, and then slowly but surely we did make the transition to that student life portfolio, and that encompasses like. All these, st- like you're so programmed to think about this population that live in residence, you see their journey, and now you're typically taking care of the, you could take care of the whole school when it comes to student life and student services. So what were some of the things that you noticed with that that move?
2: You're asking me to think back now because yeah. that was
1: some time ago. Um,
2: I, I do think, I mean, residence life has, they're so different in so many ways and so alike in so many ways. So residence life, you know, you are working with students uh, who are with you 24-7. Yeah. Like, you, you get to see a part of their lives you don't get to see in another part of student affairs, right? And so that that builds certain skills and certain insights into student behavior uh, and also into student need and how do you engage students, right? But you're also typically working with a more privileged student population. Yeah. So that's also yeah. a completely different ballgame, right? Um and I think really the magic to being able to make the transition is, is really being able to see where the common denominators are, but also understanding what's going to be different enough to be able to say, here's what I think I'm going to learn from this. Right. So for me, going to the student life side, and again, I've done it in two different institutions that are also very different. Mm-hmm. So you know, at York and uh, at Humber, uh, we're dealing with populations of students who are both racially and ethnically diverse. But the students I work with at Humber are also um, typically economically disadvantaged, Mm -hmm. which presents a whole other kind of facet to their lives. And we also see a whole lot more mature students in that environment. So student life looks different even sometimes depending on the students you are going to be working with. right? Um, So so you have to have a certain sensitivity and understanding that those student populations will be different and might need something different from you. but also not kind of bringing too many assumptions to the table, right? Because I remember being really blown away when I was at uh, our first leadership conference at uh, Humber and watching this you know 40-something pregnant woman, this 60-something and this 18-year-old at a leadership conference together, wow. engaging together in this passionate conversation And it was an aha moment. I was like, I don't think I've seen this in the university sector, right? Mm -hmm. And I think some of it is about what they're used to in the classroom. Some of it is about who we draw. But how mistaken would we have been if we made an assumption they are not going to want sort of a leadership conference, right, at that age when they were so passionately engaged in it And, and felt like we were investing in them in a way that nobody had ever invested in them. So res life, student life, lots of similarities, but I think that's where I see the differences. And I think in student life, uh, often you're juggling a lot of different hats, right? Not that you don't have a whole lot of work in res life, but in student life, I I remember my portfolio in student life was, you know, transition, commuters, town and gown relations, Mm -hmm. code of conduct, crisis, residence life. Like it had just a whole bunch of things in it. Um, and so you have to be able to kind of manage um, that workload. And it also calls on you to do a lot of creating as you go. In a way that I think Res Life calls for some creating, but there's a bit of a formula there. Student life has to evolve all the time. It's
1: true.
2: Um, to kind of keep up with you know, what is student life today? What does that look like today?
1: Yeah. Well, talking about what the student, lo- student life looks like today, uh, not to brag, but you have over 15 years experience over the years mm. in, the, in the in the field. But you look like you're a newbie, for sure. But what's something that maybe hasn't changed? And what's one observation that you think, like, that's definitely changed over the years? It hasn't changed. Hmm.
2: Well, I mean, I think the reality of our work is it can become very cyclical. I I remember even as a student, I was an engaged student leader, and I remember having moments where I bumped into student services people who were quite crusty, and they were quite crusty because they answered the same question about a million times. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, my view did not get to the place of understanding you're done with the job and you need to move on to something else to keep it fresh because that student's asking it for the first time. So there are some things that never change, yeah. right? Which is, like, we know the development p- developmental pathway that students are going to follow is what it is. Uh, we know um, that some of the issues they're going to grapple with are, are similar. Uh, and those things haven't really changed over time. You're going to see those same patterns, and you're going to see a cyclical – there's a cyclical nature to the work that we do. But that can also really trump you up, tra- trip yeah. you up, because it can – you Know signal to you that you, c- you just have to do the same thing. And I, I had an experience as a new professional when I was at Guelph in residence life live in. I remember coaching an RA around a roommate conflict and realizing that I was on autopilot. I wasn't oh even, I was oh. just speaking this, you know, script that I had gotten used to like, yeah. here's what you do, you do this, and then, you, right, do and then this. you do that, and you know, and giving my tips. And I was totally tuned out to myself. And I remember thinking, that's it. you got to move on. Mm -hmm. Now's the time to move on because you cannot cannot go on autopilot. You're going to miss something, right? And so what's changed? Well, I mean, the cost of education today is just through the roof, right? I feel for our students. I think about how heavy a choice that must be compared to what it was when I was a student Uh, because of the money that's invested. I think the employment landscape is you know, not a heartening one for students graduating today. Um, And so I think that complicates lives quite a bit. Um, I think access has become big in Mm post-secondary, and I'm particularly attuned to that because we're an access institution. Mm -hmm. We are in a community college, but I think it's the case everywhere, which means we are seeing the good news stories. We're seeing all sorts of students come to university and college who have not been able to access it before. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we are seeing all sorts of new issues in a volume we've never seen it before in terms of people's level of preparation or um, the lack of support they have to be where they are or the different needs that they're just presenting with, right? Um, That sometimes us old fogies are probably not as, you know, uh, familiar with and ready to respond to. And so it, it takes really paying attention to what's going on around you to be able to be ready for with. You know, what is a solution today? What is support today? Uh, What does engagement today look like when students are facing, you know, those unique challenges that they are facing today? I also think the legal landscape has changed tremendously. And I just remember, you know, residence life of the, you know, 2000s being a time when risk management wasn't high. And, like, you know, a student would... I don't know, land in the hospital, and nobody would go visit them from the university. It'd be like, I'll see you when you get back, right? Yeah, let me
1: know when
2: you You know, and (laughs) yet, you know, my last years in residence life, I can't tell you the number of nights I spent at the hospital with students who were facing a mental health crisis or were there for over-intoxication or had been injured or whatever it might be it's um there's just a different level of care that was that's expected and i think we're seeing in the media this you know uh, this constant messaging around accountability of post secondary and i think that's tied to that legal culture there's some expectation that people feel we're not meeting or a different standard that people are expecting of us that uh, you know is it makes for a very different practice today than it would have been
1: 10 15 years for ago sure. So this might, have, this might cause you to go back in time a little bit more, but um, I found one of the title of your, I believe, your thesis. <laughs> um, and I think what made me curious about it or interested in it is because um, I did, uh, at Humber and at uh, UTSC, I had um, experience working in the International Student Center, and I always liked being reminded of Sometimes we're just really focused on international students from abroad, right? And we often overlook um, Canadian students or local students, like changing provinces and what that transition might be like. So when I found the title of your paper as um, a comparison of the characteristics, experiences, and perceptions of Canadian university students of French and English language of origin, I was thinking, oh like, that's like such a good reminder that like international students is a broader. Or maybe it might be the wrong death, like wrong title for all those students that are transitioning from like not within Toronto, Ontario. Um, so, I guess with, through your paper and I guess through your own personal journey, I are there any things that you know as professionals we could be mindful of instead of like just thinking okay they're they're Canadian they know they're, they're they'll find their own way. What are things that you know from that journey that you're like? It's important as professionals that we know about this experience as well. Well. And I'm going to take just a little step back on that and say I, I come at this
2: topic from a personal sort of uh, standpoint in that um, I was raised in Quebec. My mother tongue is French. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where the interest of the thesis came into play. And, and there's actually a lot of research in the K-12 to around the connection of language to culture mm-hmm. and also what happens to language acquisition uh, when you are in... Um, a minority language environment versus a majority language environment. And so it was puzzling to me that we haven't done a whole lot of this beyond the K-12 to and paid attention to what it means because, of course, you know, I have childhood friends who made educational choices based on their language ability and what was available program-wise in their language ability. Right? And so it, it just puts a whole different spin on it because... You know, it's, it's this whole separatist movement in Quebec, but the reality is there is um, there's a reality under that that we need to pay attention to, which is uh, we can make a lot of assumptions, like you said, about I'm Canadian, and so Canadian is Canadian is Canadian. Yes, We've all she, had the yeah. same experience, but you and I both know that Aboriginal people in this country uh, have a very different lived experience, and I think when you start to think about provinces or you start to think about... Um, languages, uh, those things are connected to culture as well, right? Um, and I mean, there's a lot of subtleties around that too, people's communities even within Ontario uh, the, and their lived experience in that respect. So what, you know, what do people need to pay attention to? I think they just need to, again, it's about listening in your role, it's about paying attention to what's going on around you and who, who your students are and not working off assumptions. And that can get really hard to do when you're getting in the groove of your you know, your practice and you've got lots of years of experience, you can start to put the blinders on. It's really important to, to, to just kind of tune in to what people's lived experiences are and not make assumptions about their comfort level. And the thesis was interesting for me because what it revealed is that there are actually patterns in terms of the kinds of services that those Francophone students would use versus anglophone students. And to me, that just speaks to different motivations. It speaks to different goals uh, that are influenced by culture. Right, And so we think of it as francophone, it's language, yeah. but there's a culture wrapped in there, right? And again, um, and I'm simplifying it here because uh, even when we were writing the chapter for the book that came from this thesis, mm-hmm. and I had a co-author on this, one of the things we really struggled with is francophone in Ontario ver- versus francophone in Alberta versus, oh, like yeah. d- right, francophone Different. from Morocco. Yeah. You have a language in common, but you know that's kind of where it ends, right? So you know, particularly I think as professionals, when we run into students who are struggling with transition, mm-hmm. they might those students might not be able to articulate what's getting in the way. But sometimes, um, you know, their adjustment to our province and the cl- even Toronto, yeah. there's a particular way of life and a way in which we interact and relate to one another that is cultural to this province that is different. So Uh, from you know other provinces and even within province can vary depending on your background so
1: and sometimes it might be like a delayed reaction like you think it'll be fine I know my way and then something simple as oh I have to change my health insurance or um the streets like whatever it might be just like some some way sometime along the way suddenly you're like I'm transitioning this is not new to me and
2: Well, and you know this from working with international students. I have a dear friend who is from Puerto Rico who talks about how much adjustment she had to do, particularly when she came to Canada, around not saying what she thought. Because in her culture, you just say it like it is. (laughs) And the (laughs) reaction she was getting when she was on Ontario quickly taught her that was going to get in the way, right? Oh, my goodness. Um, And those are the subtleties of culture that sometimes we don't pay attention to. And, And you and I both know that we lose a lot of students, right? Yeah, and w- and a really big piece of students sticking it out is feeling a sense of connection and home, mm-hmm. right? And so h- you, you have to get to the heart of what is the barrier to that. And for some, that's about the culture. For some, that's about the language. Um, and all students face that because post-secondary is a culture of its own. Yeah. But it is influenced by, you know, a white... Uh, mindset that is more problematic for other students, that we need to, uh, Anglophone mindset, that we need to, to just be attuned to and look for opportunities to kind of break down those walls for people.
1: Right. What are some things right now that your, um, your team, your department might be working on that you're really proud of? Like what are some things that you're like, you know, trying to start or have created at Humber that you're like, we're really good at, you know, we're really nailing this down and something that we really want to share or begin to share. Well, for us, the buzzword right now is integration. Like, yeah. We're looking
2: for ways of making the bureaucracy disappear for students. We have become, I mean, Humber at one time was a very small place. Yeah. It is a very large place now. And we are looking for ways to make the place feel smaller, people more manageable. And you know, students shouldn't have to figure out how to navigate the place. So how do we begin to build systems that uh, minimize the amount of navigation that students have to do on their own? and reduce the bump around factor. So for us in advising, that's about, um, you know, pockets of advising connecting in a more intentional way, right? So that students don't have to bridge those worlds on their own. We appreciate that sometimes there has to be expertise in the mix, but, you know, how, how do you pass the baton, how do you do the relay (laughs) without, you know, without making students feel like they're getting the runaround, right? So for us, we're working on that, and it's anything from, I mean, the the big win for us has been a training um, for all advisors across campus that has created a, a sort of a community of practice where advisors that often didn't even know about each other or understand what each other's roles were are now getting more of a chance to interact and and build bridges. And hopefully what that does for our students is that there's a common understanding of what students need and uh, easy connections are made. Um, and also some shared knowledge, right, that, that allows us to be um, as full service as we can be when the expertise is not needed. Um, We've also, uh, you know, uh, certainly I can't take all the credit for this, but we were fortunate to be given an opportunity to launch uh, an advising center that's a a, a hybrid of career and academic advising, and allows us to have kind of a general center for students to come into and seek advising if they're just not sure Mm -hmm. who they're supposed to be asking the question of. We're also working on technologies that are allowing for students to have easier access to advising, whether that's um, web-based advising or just even booking appointments online. Uh, there are many okay. of us in the field that, that just make it really hard to access these things, yeah. right? So how do we make it easier for students to access? Uh, providing tools where they can do, without getting an uh, uh, advising per se, they can do some of that themselves if they want. Uh, navigate sort of their journey a little more intelligently with some tools. Um, so those are the things that we're working on that I'm really jazzed about.
1: In the background, how did how do you and your team massage... like so oftentimes you talked about um like the shared training of advisors and booking online and I'm just thinking on the about the back end how there's so many players across your institution, different experience, different levels and comfort levels with technology and you know, they might some might be burnt out, some might be new. So in the back end, how did you and your team like massage those relationships to get people on board and get the buy-in? Like, what were some of the,
2: like... Well, A, we still are. We're still working yeah. on that. It's a work in progress. Um, B, I'm a big believer if you wait for everybody to be on board, you're never going to get there. So you kind of have to let the grassroots grow itself, right? right? So put it out there, get the early adopters going, and then people are going to start to look at, at your sandbox and go, what are you doing over there? Yeah. I'm interested, right? I also think, quite frankly, that... You know whether we think all of our colleagues do their work well, the reality is most of our colleagues are in the job because they love students, mm-hmm. and so you know, always appeal to that bottom line, which is they do want to make things better for students, right? So we certainly run into a lot of politics as well yeah. around, like, well, I do advising, why would you do yeah. advising, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the reality is, is when you make space for conversation, what people quickly realize is that they have things they are dealing with that they feel out of their depth around, and they're excited to find there's somebody else who might actually have that expertise. And Mm so, wow, now I have somebody supporting me in my work. And so I find nine times out of ten, that's really kind of where we get to. It's not that we don't have the one out of ten who says, mine, 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 stay away, but nine times out of ten, you get people saying, we're going to do better for students together, and I see here that I've been carrying stuff that, you know, I have been feeling stressed about. I have been worried that I can't do this well on my own; that I don't know what I need to do to do this well. And now I have somebody who I know can do this, right? So, good. That's a good
1: tip. Thank you. Um, okay, so my next question is about a gold moment. So, can you recall a moment during your career where you received that, like? An aha, like forehead slap, like I'm never forgetting to get this amazingness that, you know, something that you just want a realization or like a, a moment of like inspiration that you're like, this is it. Um, can, like any moment, like and it could have happened maybe at each institution, but just a moment when you were like, wow, I never knew this was possible, this is amazing, I want more. Or I learned this and I'll never forget this because this will change how I approach my team or a student or.
2: Uh, okay, so I'm not really good on the spot. That's okay. And that's a very big question. Um, I can't automatically think of something. And, th- and I feel bad saying that because okay. there has been it's a million aha uh-huh moments, yeah. right? Uh, and I think that has been the key for me in terms of loving my work. Like if I stop learning, um, it's not a whole lot of fun, yeah. right? Sometimes those lonely moments are painful. Um, so we had a student... Um, who had a very bad service experience with our center, and I bumped into it last Thursday evening, and and was very humbled, right? You have those moments where students remind you, like, you know, as much as you have good intent, sometimes you don't do it well, right? And so I was reminded that, Mm. you know, as much as I think we're doing a great job, not every student is being served well, and and we need to to have that humility to look at that on an ongoing basis, um, you know. And then there are other moments where uh, I will always remember. I had a student, you know. Th- this is the beauty of res life. You work with students sometimes in their toughest moments, and you rarely get to see that that makes a difference in their lives. And the real aha moments is where you realize. Sometimes it does, right? And I had a student, this was a long time ago, who I had pretty much kicked out of residence who came (laughs) back to see me to say, you did me a favor. Really? Yeah. And that rarely happens in this field, right? Rarely happens in this field. Um, But it did happen, right? Uh, So we, uh, you know, sometimes we learn from our mistakes. And you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to say, okay, yeah, I screwed up. Um, because I know that that's not my intent, right? But sometimes in the business of what we do, we're not always going to do it right. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, hopefully, uh, you know, I have been blessed with those moments of feeling like I have done it right. Um, Students I've mentored who I've been able to see grow up and build their families and their careers, and because they've stayed in touch because of the impact I've had, those are the things that sort of keep me in the game, right? Um, Still trying to think of that aha
1: moment. So that was, those were good ones. <laughs> yeah, those are really good shares. Thank you. Uh, if you were to create a conference presentation now, and I think maybe it might be the work integrated topic that you talked about, but what do you think, um, what's something that you might want to present on? What do you think are topics that people need to be aware of? Let's say the forum's caucus. Like what would be um, important to make sure that's part of the curriculum for caucus? Hmm. Work-integrated learning is a good one, for sure. I think that's something that... Yeah, I think
2: it's interesting. We're having conversations on our campus, and I can't take responsibility for it. This is coming out of the Dean of Students office, John McMillan in particular, around the healthy campus stuff. And this was a somewhat aha moment for me recently around the importance of um, feeling you have a future career-wise and meaningful employment to mental health. And that connection and that tie. And so for me, I, you know, I'm not ready to present on this topic yet, but it is something of an interest to me around, you know, the essentiality of uh, career trajectory and, and feeling like you have a future and having hope to being a well person generally. And how do we, how do we account for that? as student affairs professionals, right? Because I don't think, and I've, I've had this conversation with my VP, mm-hmm. it's my little soapbox, I actually don't think that mandate is just a career service mandate. I think it's about us thinking about what does it mean to be an educated person today, mm-hmm. and what does it mean to be a well person today in our society, and an engaged person in our society. And there's a piece of that that's about you know gainful employment and meaningful employment. Um, and feeling like you have a future, right? And, and how are we contributing to that? So for us at Humber, I, I want us to be having some critical conversations around, you know, where does career preparation fit in the curriculum? Oh, yeah. Right? Where does it fit in the ongoing conversation through a student's path with us about their life, their goals, their aspirations, um, and how does that connect to achieving academically, but then also having a future, right, that includes meaningful employment. And um, it, it's a cross-campus conversation. It isn't, uh, it's something that people right now put in a box and say, I'll deal with it when I get close to graduation. But yeah. it, it's the threads of that are interwoven into our well-being and our lives in so many ways, right? You can think about a student who looks at the employment landscape and tries to make an educational choice, even coming into university or college, the level of anxiety they have if they don't feel hope, true, yeah. right? And that that also is connected to the communities they've come from and what how much privilege they've come from or not, and whether they've seen examples of that possibility or not, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the the thing is, education continues to be this um, this hopeful thing that people hang on to, even though it costs, uh, you know, a lot of money today and people complain about it doesn't always produce the outcomes, the reality is we see families push their kids to education as, you know, it will be the key to success. Um, But we know increasingly that that's not a given, right? And that's the reality of um, a society where there is disparity, right? And a society where... We've got financial and economic strains. So
1: again, how do we equip people to be well in that and to be successful in that? So that's a good one. You even your statement made me think about, I guess, us as professional like how that relates to us as professionals uh, ourselves, right? So like, do we have you know job security, and do we feel like you know there's a we're at the right place, right time, there's growth, and how does that add to our own well being? So yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Well, I'm thinking about like. This whole dialogue around precarious employment, imagine yourself being a student today and that's what you're going to be facing. Like, what does that do to your sense of well-being? What does that do to your sense of, um, you know, I can get myself out of the predicament I've come from. I can improve my life. I can, when that is what you're facing, right? I think for us in career advising, it means we have to think of what that means when we career advise people because we are preparing them for a very different workplace than what our formulas were built to prepare people for, right? It's
1: true.
2: Whether it's self-employment mm-hmm. and, you know, how do you build a life on contract? I mean, we've got contract faculty who know this reality, who have spent most of their lives yeah. from one contract to the next, more than one contract at a time. It, it's a very different way of being. And, again, how do you help people be successful career-wise in that, to underst- to, to do a successful job search in that, but also how do you, how do they stay well and healthy in that?
1: I ask you, let's see. I feel like we've just been sailing through any all these amazing things. I keep taking on tangents. no, not even like <laughs> it, it's like flowing, it's flowing. I guess I don't I'm trying to phrase this question um, so I read like it's an old um introduction to you when you were starting the new advising and student support like director role. Mm-hmm. I think it was like crafted by Jason Hunter and it's a new position. so like how do you tackle new positions like when you're the first one it's exciting but like I guess what are some of the things like in the, like the, the three to six months that you're like you're, what are your goals within that a new role like how do you begin to unpack this is it's, I, I'm starting it I'm the first pair of shoes in this. It's exciting. I could make my mark, but then what are my out- like, outcomes? Like, what's that journey like? Yeah. Well, it can be a bit nerve-wracking. Yeah. And
2: I, I think I've come to know and understand that you have to have some understanding of what, what jazzes you, what makes you tick. And you have to decide whether that's the kind of stuff you like to do or not, right? Because um, it's not for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I have moments where I think... Um, <laughs> Uh, do I do? What am I doing? <laughs> Why didn't I pick something that was like formulaic, yeah. right? And you know, one of my staff, who I've known for a very long time, will look at me and say, "But this is what you do, right? Because this is what you like to do, and this is what you're good at." Um, so we all have to figure out, right? Not everybody should do that because mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's not going to sustain everyone. But in terms of when you're faced with that, really, it's part figuring out what your vision is. And typically, you don't step into that kind of role unless, you're, again, you're excited about yeah. seeing something to fruition. And for me, what drove me in this was about the, was the student experience. I was like, I see the gaps. I see where students are falling through the cracks. And I think we can make a difference in this. Um, that's what drives me every day. Because uh, often with those projects, it's three steps forward and five back, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's... You you do have wins, and then you have setbacks um, because you are changing culture oftentimes. When you have a brand-new position, um, there may not be anything there that's been scripted for you, but everybody around you has got their own own impression of whether that position should be there or not and what that position is going to achieve and what you should be doing with your time. And so a very big part of... um, You know, taking on something completely new is also the stakeholder piece. Like, you've got to spend time talking to people. You've got to spend time trying to uh, absorb what all the different sort of visions are. Mm. It doesn't mean you have to march to that drum, but you have to have some understanding of what the landscape is. And that's really what I did probably for the first year and a half. Mm. And I had some ideas, and there was definitely a mandate that my position came with, but I spent a lot of time trying to discern, okay, so, you know, what are each of the deans thinking about this? What is their mind frame around this, right? And then sometimes you just got to give it time. Um, A a very microscopic example is when I stepped into the role initially, I was taking on career services, and one of the deans tapped me on the shoulders. We have a number of different portals at the institution for job searching and placements, internships and placements. Everybody does their own thing, yeah. right? Very confusing landscape, especially for employers, but also for students. And this dean said to me, is it time? Is it time yet for us to kind of take the shovel to this? And, you know, so y- some of it's about finding your allies, too, figuring out who wants to work with you. Now, it has been three, four years now, and we're finally getting there. So you got to be patient. yeah and there's lots of reasons why. But we are at a point now where everybody wants in, right? So I probably have, you know, one academic school who's reticent. And quite frankly, I'm like, that's fine. yeah, Because I'm going to play with the ones who want to play. Because people are so excited about making this move. And what it means for us is kind of, again, it's back to the integration, right? Yes, we have placement offices in every academic school. Students and the employers don't need to know that. That their information can be integrated, that an employer can post and not have to worry about figuring out where it should be posted and who should they, be, they should be talking to. Uh, that a student doesn't have to figure doesn't have to enter three different portals because I want a part time job or I want a yeah. placement internship or I want a full time grad job, but it's all in the same place. So we're going to hide the structure behind this this platform. When you use a common platform, hide the structure behind. And start to work more closely together across those silos. So, yeah.
1: So, a lot of being patient, not wanting, like, not feeling the need to show off and debut in that, you know, first couple of months, but then to know the ground, the people involved, and. But you also
2: got to capitalize on what you do best, right? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, and uh, uh, this isn't my forte. I think there are others who are, you know, let's show something yeah. in the first six months. And sometimes not everything can be by consensus, right? Sometimes you just got to draw a line in the sand and get it done. And that's kind of what we did with training, right? Um, and I really need to give props to Melissa Gallo for that because she sort of took that training mandate and said, all right, we're making this happen, and naysayers be darned, we're, yeah. you know, we're moving this forward. Um, and you do need those wins along the way. Um, but some of how I've approached this works for me just because it's how I work. Right? And so everybody takes on a new position. They've got to capitalize on their own style. Right? For me, that's building relationships, and that's building partnerships and buy-in. Uh, and that's what I do well, and so that's the way I've approached this project. Right? Um, someone else might have a different strength that they need to capitalize on to be able to make that work.
1: Okay, so now we're in the next wave. It's just rapid-fire questions. We did it. We did the main interview and now it's just like, yeah, it's just like first thing that comes to mind. um, Like silly stuff, fun stuff. I might sneak a few cool things, but let's see. Okay, so favorite Muppet? Oh, Kermit. Passenger or driver? Totally driver. One of your favorite movies, top five maybe.
2: Uh, the Hanging Garden. Ooh,
1: okay. The last book you read?
2: That's not very interesting. Um, I, the last book, actually, I read was by Marc, Marc Lévy, and it's a French uh, novel. Uh, and Marc Lévy uh, writes um, mysteries.
1: Poutine or Beaver Tales? Neither. Ooh. Um, video or Photo. If you weren't in student affairs, what would you be doing? Hmm.
2: Well, I used to think I'd be a chef. Me
1: <laughs> <laughs> too! Yeah, me too, totally. If you were to donate a bunch of money to a university or college for a building, what kind of building would you want to build?
2: Right. Um, it's funny, because I was listening to Trisha Siefert's, uh interview, and of course, she brilliantly said it wouldn't be a building. Uh, that I would use that money on. Um, And she got me thinking. But the students I work with at Humber, um, we have some students who have precarious home situations. So the building I would build is a place that allows for those students to have a roof over their head when they need it.
1: And last one, if you could trade... uh a day with one person, like trade, be in their shoes for one day, um, who would that person be? Hmm.
2: Wow, that's a very big question too. <laughs> ah, be in their shoes for one day. Are you, are you talking about someone in student affairs?
1: Famous. Famous student affairs, like for example, mine I think was Oprah and I said that as Oprah, I would write my me, Nadia, a check. <laughs> so that when I go back to my shoes, I'm like, yay, thanks, Oprah. Hmm.
2: Wow. I uh yeah, that's a good one. You've stomped me. Okay, okay
1: I've stumped you. Okay, so I think oh, oh another this is another deep one, but what would what would you say to first year you? First year me.
2: Uh slow down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, first year me was in a hurry to experience yeah. life and freedom. Yeah, yeah. First slow year down. me would say slow down. First year me would say, um, be okay with who you are. I really I had program fit issues, and some of it was about, you know, just fighting mm-hmm. what I was good at and not recognizing what I was good at uh, because I wanted to be something else. Right, mm-hmm. that wasn't me.
1: We did it, first interview. Yeah, you're done. (laughs) Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, I know, I sound like I'm in royal pain. I'm just not the best at this interview thing, but I so appreciate the opportunity.
1: You're wonderful, it was great. I learned so much. To picking your brain was so helpful and I'm excited for people to hear it and thank you for being my first interview. Okay, oh wait, last question. So that's a relay, so uh, we're gonna pass the baton who would you advise me in interviewing next?
2: So as I said to you before the interview, I really struggled with this because I I could think of about, you know, 30 plus Mm -hmm. very interesting people in this field. I'm going to say I'd like to pass it to Saba Rafiq at York University. Okay. You're going to find her journey interesting.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a good one. Okay, okay. So we are done. This is it. Bye. Bye. So there you have it. That was the my first interview. That was amazing. <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was so great. You're a natural.
1: Thank you. I try, I try. Uh, if people are interested in following Chantel on Twitter, look her up. It's Cjoy underscore Humber.
0: Amazing. At
1: Cjoy underscore Humber. Yeah. And
0: Nadia, what if people want to connect with you on Twitter?
1: Ooh, I am at Nad's Roses on Twitter. Okay. How about you, Adam?
0: Um, I think my handle is at Adam Kewen, <laughs> K-U-H-N. Yeah, easy peasy.
1: Hashtag Relay S-A. S-A. Yeah. yeah.
0: So join the conversation. Um, and before we wrap up, we just want to thank Adrian Ross, who does our theme music. We have a new theme song for this season, so we're pretty hyped for that. And um, before we conclude, just want to invite, if anyone has any ideas for your own podcast or you have one recording that you want to get out there, uh, please let us know. We're happy to share um, our SoundCloud account and and help kind of promote and and share your ideas as well. Um, We know that there's lots of different conversations happening and we want to help uh, amplify them if possible.
1: For sure. Amazing.
0: Episode one.
1: We did it. Yeah. (laughs)